Mason welcoming you to chapter 147 of A History of England. Back in episode 144, I talked about the first squall in the storm that had been brewing over Ireland, and in the following episode about how things blew up in the Home Rule debate. The storm kept rumbling through Salisbury's second government, but before we get back to it, I'd like to spend this week talking about some of the other issues that government had to deal with, if only to understand how power was being exercised in Britain and where the country was going. Next week, we'll come back to Britain's stormy relations with Ireland with a better understanding of who was governing them and how. Meanwhile, let's head back to the Balkans and to Bulgaria, where, in August 1887, one German prince, Ferdinand of Saxe-Coburg, was elected king in place of that other German prince, and Queen Victoria's deposed favourite, Alexander of Battenberg. Salisbury's fear was that Ferdinand would fall and Russia would engineer a situation where it could intervene to, in quotes, restore order. Salisbury, who, following the death of his foreign secretary, had once more taken the job on himself, instructed the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, still technically overlord of Bulgaria, to do nothing that might precipitate things. Whatever happens, he wrote, will be for the worse, and therefore it is in our interest that as little should happen as possible. As Salisbury's biographer Andrew Roberts points out, this summed up his attitude generally, and not just on the Balkans. Others, however, did want things to happen, and were happy to resort to skullduggery to make sure they did. Bismarck, the German Prime Minister, publicly backed Russia, while secretly urging Britain, Austria and Italy to prepare for war to support Turkey. Bismarck sent his son to explain to Britain that behaving this way didn't constitute duplicity, which is rather like politicians caught in their lies, protesting their innocence with new lies, a phenomenon not unknown in our own days. Salisbury was certain that Bismarck wanted the other great powers tied up in the Balkans to give him a free hand should hostilities break out again with France, as seemed far from unlikely. Salisbury and the others refused to be drawn, and ultimately he got his wish of making nothing happen. And that worked fine. Russia wasn't happy about Ferdinand, but in the end chose not to go to war. Ferdinand remained in power until forced to abdicate at the end of the First World War for having backed the losing side. While peace was bought for the moment, the Balkans would remain one of the sources of friction that led to that war. Still, a collective sigh of relief swept across the chancelleries of Europe, anxious above all to avoid another great power conflict. Another issue that might have led to trouble was Egypt. The other powers were unhappy with the continuing British occupation. France was particularly upset, since it had expected to exert much more influence itself following its leading role in building the Suez Canal. As it happened, Salisbury wasn't that keen either. He'd criticised Gladstone for sending in troops, and now told the British High Commissioner, I heartily wish we had never got into Egypt. Had we not done so, we could snap our fingers at all the world. But the national or acquisitional feeling has been roused. It has tasted the flesh pots, and it will not let them go. 
Yes, acquisitional feelings had been aroused, even though technically Egypt wasn't a British acquisition. Nominally, the Khedive ruled the country, and he was answerable to the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. In reality, with its army on the spot, Britain exerted control. That was a fine example of what came to be known as informal empire. With no one all that enthusiastic about the British presence in Egypt, negotiations got underway to end it. That led to a draft agreement for which Salisbury had to seek approval from the other powers. Germany and Britain were jockeying at the time for position in East Africa, specifically over the island of Zanzibar and the nearby mainland coastline, today all part of Tanzania. Bismarck, upset by the British Consul General's behaviour in Zanzibar, threatened to withdraw support from the Egyptian arrangement unless he was moved on. Salisbury, at first reluctant, eventually decided that it is not worth quarrelling with Bismarck and promoted the consul as a pretext for transferring him. He needn't have bothered. The French and Russians didn't like the provision in the negotiated agreement that would allow Britain to return to Egypt should the country be threatened by an internal or external danger. The Turks, as the nominal imperial power in Egypt, had to agree the deal for it to come into effect. French and Russian pressure persuaded them not to give their assent. The agreement fell through and Britain remained in Egypt until 1956. There were other flashpoints too. Another that would be a key contributor to the outbreak of the First World War was the status of Belgium. Britain was deeply uneasy about the prospect of a major military power occupying Belgium, viewed as altogether too close for comfort. The British had signed a treaty in 1839 guaranteeing Belgium's neutrality. Now, though, in 1887, with war between France and Germany apparently imminent, an article appeared in the London press calling for the lifting of the guarantee to Belgium so that German troops could move through the country to attack France. The article was anonymous, but it's now clear that it was written at Salisbury's bidding. The key idea was that upholding Belgian neutrality might drag Britain into war alongside France and against Germany. That, Salisbury felt, would have it fighting on the wrong side. Salisbury was still imbued with the traditional view of France as Britain's principal enemy. He wrote to the Queen in August 1888. France is, and must always remain, England's greatest danger, but that danger is dormant so long as the present strained relations exist between France and her two eastern neighbours. Germany and Austria-Hungary were those eastern neighbours. It's ironic to see Salisbury counting on them to keep the threat from France in check. The First World War, now just 26 years away, would pit Britain with France and Russia against Germany and Austria-Hungary. The issue didn't come to the crunch back in the 1880s, however. France and Germany, for all their hostility, avoided war just then. More dangerous in the long term than military and imperial rivalries was the economic competition Britain now faced. After all, economic advantage could turn dangerously into military superiority anyway. We've seen how Britain, by being the first into the industrialization race, had gained an advantage over its rivals. 
the era of free trade ushered in by Peel's repeal of the Corn Laws consolidated that advantage since it removed tariffs, that is to say duties, on the products of one nation sold in another. That's allowed Britain to sell its manufactured goods to countries not yet able to produce them without the inflated prices a tariff would have imposed. Salisbury had initially opposed Peel. After all, he belonged to the great landowning class that took much of its income from agriculture. The tariffs supplied by the Corn Laws made imported grain expensive to protect domestic production through a price advantage. While a student at Oxford, he spoke in a debate in favour of the motion that the state of the nation imperatively requires a return to the principles of protection. Later, though, he changed position in the face of clear evidence that free trade was benefiting Britain. He was, however, never dogmatically committed to free trade. He was pragmatic, judging each case on its merits. Asked what he thought about applying tariffs on imports, he answered, It all depends on the tariff. Show me one, and I will tell you whether I approve of it or not. By the late 1880s, Britain was beginning to lose its advantage as the world's first industrial power. The economist Angus Madison has calculated figures for gross domestic product, GDP, basically a measure of national income, taking purchasing power differences into account, how much the same amount of money can buy in different countries. On that basis, Germany was closing in quickly on Britain by this time, and the US may already have been ahead. By the outbreak of the First World War, Germany was slightly ahead, and the US had over twice Britain's GDP. Both Germany and the US had adopted the tactic of protecting their own industries by imposing tariffs on imports. Now there emerged in Britain a movement called fair trade, as opposed to free trade, which demanded retaliatory measures, so tariffs on British goods would be met by tariffs on the goods of the country imposing them. Salisbury stuck firmly to his pragmatic stance, refusing to give his full backing to either free trade or to protective tariffs. Whether this was sound economics or not, it was certainly good politics. Half Salisbury's cabinet favoured tariffs to protect British goods. On the other hand, most liberal unionists, on whose votes he depended, were committed to free trade. Salisbury's case-by-case -case stance held his coalition together, at least until the next general election. Next, there's the issue of reform of the House of Lords. Salisbury successfully defended the Lords against reform on the grounds, as Andrew Roberts quotes him, that it consisted of people from the wealthier and more educated classes, who were more likely to be undefiled by the taint of sordid greed. Again, this is a defence of his class. The English aristocracy is a wonderful institution, he argued, not for its power, which is nothing, nor for its achievements, which are few, but for the gigantic impression it is able to make upon weak minds. That capacity to impress, institutionalised in the House of Lords, offered a bulwark in Salisbury's view against the tendency of weak minds, no doubt possessed by people from classes less wealthy than his, towards extreme measures. Something rather similar colours the last example I'm going to give of these issues. That was Salisbury's resistance to a proposal enthusiastically backed by his nephew, Arthur Balfour, included by Salisbury as a minister in his government. 
The proposal was to allow compulsory purchase of land to provide allotments, small holdings in which poorer people could grow plants for pleasure or the table. Salisbury loathed the idea and for a specific reason. Land has never been taken forcibly by Parliament from one individual merely to benefit another individual. The principle so introduced will spread. After this bill passes, there will be no course of precedent or accepted practice to restrain it. The extension to any class of men of the benefits of expropriation at their neighbour's expense will depend solely upon the possession of sufficient electoral power to disquiet a certain number of Conservative members. Despite his being the only voice in Cabinet opposed to the measure, he managed to get it heavily watered down before it was adopted. That adoption only came in response to a bad result at a by-election. In other words, to just the kind of event that would, in his words, disquiet a certain number of Conservative members. He hated that and pointed to the discredit of having adopted for electoral purposes a proposal which is inconsistent with the rights of property as hitherto understood. As I've said before, Salisbury was a true Conservative, a true Tory. He was deeply convinced that the aristocracy and great landowners generally, the class to which he belonged, were an invaluable stabilising force in British society, preventing a lurch in what many Brits would see as too radical a direction. The landowning class needed protection against measures that would limit its authority, such as expropriation, so that they could continue their work of defending the way things were. Let's not forget, he was a man who felt any change would be a change for the worse. But he'd also revealed the pragmatic bent. He would accept change when circumstances made it impossible to avoid. If that required modifying even valued principles, he would modify them. They could even be adapted, though he wasn't happy about it, if that was required by the electoral considerations of a Conservative Party well on the way to becoming the most successful election-winning machine Britain has ever seen. So that's enough for him for now. Let's move on. We've just met Arthur Balfour, his nephew. Next week, let's explore how he came to be known as Bloody Balfour, which, since it was there he acquired the nickname, will get us right back to Ireland, just as I promised. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 